You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. The hardest part of that song to sing for me is this, the verse where it says, Though no one join me, still I will follow. I don't know if I've ever been tested in that, and I hope I would follow if no one joined me. Between the singing of that song and the singing of our last song in the service today, uh, and then Pastor Elf's going to come and give the benediction, we have a, a time right now when, through examining a example from Scripture, we have an opportunity to take an inward journey to look at our own lives and some of our own fears and our own things, and then we have an opportunity at the end to bring that to God. And so... As we think about that, I, I'm going to be asking you to, to look at some scriptures with me. We never have time Sunday morning to, to really get deep into some of the scriptures, and especially on Sundays like today, when we have a swath of scripture that's three chapters long and a narrative that is so rich and deep, we, we can only kind of touch the surface. And so the notes that we place on the webpage, the binders that were sold and you, some of you bought, uh, those have a lot more of study material that I would commend to you. And this morning, as we look at the scriptures, we're going to be learning a lesson that has to do with the fact that God esteems a trusting and obeying relationship more than any other religious activity or any other personal agenda. And the story of Saul is one that we're going to be examining. And so uh, would you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15 and... To set the context of the portion I'm going to read, I want you to know that in 1 Samuel 15, God, through Samuel, has told Saul, the king, to go and fight the Amalekites and uh, to spare nothing because of wickedness and judgment he is giving. And and we'll talk about that later in the service. And instead, he, he doesn't do what God asked. He disobeys. And we pick up the text in 1 Samuel chapter 15, and we'll begin in verse 10. Would you stand with me, if you're able to, and listen to what God's Word says? Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I am grieved that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone down to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you, I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? Why is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we, are, we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? 
But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and king and, and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance, the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him confidently, thinking, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. And until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. May God bless his word. You may be seated. As Kevin has suggested earlier in our worship service, the study of Saul's life is a study of a very insecure man, a man who, whose pride and insecurity is, is, is compelling him to do things. Compelling forces that he never really identifies them as his primary enemies in his life. He never really gets a hold of what it is that he's driven by. He gets caught in this incredible complex web that incapacitates him from being able to truly hear and obey the Lord. More than any outward enemy that Saul had, such as the Philistines or the Amalekites, it was the inner fears, the inner compelling drives that that haunted Saul, that made him, enslaved him. I think we can all identify with Saul at some level, fearing failure. He is a man more driven than he is called. And uh, at some level, some of us, all of us, I should say, are driven. And we need to understand those drives that come from within if we're going to be able to conquer them. And so this fear of failure is something that we're going to be addressing today. I've had several fears of failure over my years. I can remember one of them that came to me this week as I was thinking about this was when I was a child. My parents always entered all of us kids in swimming lessons. Every summer we had to take swimming lessons. And I failed beginners every summer. I don't know, I think it was three or four summers in a row that, that I would fail beginning swimming. All you have to do to, to pass beginners... Is, is live. 
pretty much, and stay on top of the water a little bit. Well, my panic of water made me hold my breath, go down, dive under, and look for the nearest dock, ladder, sand, whatever that I could grab onto. And so every summer I would fail beginners. And and it got to the point after a few summers of this that my fear of the water was overcome by actually my fear of failure. Because I was really getting tired of the fear of failure. And so the one summer, I remember I made my brother swear an oath to me that he would go along with my lie. And so I told my parents that I passed, but they ran out of badges. (laughs) And I don't know if they ever bought it or not, but uh, I got away with it somehow. Another time I remember in grade five. In grade five in Ontario, we had these things called units that we had to pass. There was three or four units every year. And I remember Mrs. Mighton walking up and down the aisles, handing out the report cards one semester. And I had failed a unit. And I laid my head on my desk. I was crying. And I remember Mrs. Mighton trying to console me. And I was crying. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. And, and to hide this fear of failure ahead of my classmates, what did I do? I said, I'm not crying because I failed. I'm crying because I'm afraid of what my dad's going to do when I get home. Well, that was a big lie. There was nothing going to happen at home. But again, my fear of failure was, was driving me to do things. There were other stories in my life I could share. I'm failing my first driver's test. And, and, and the list goes on. You know, it was interesting because it was, it, was, it was as my adolescent years ended and I went into adulthood, I realized this is a, a very dangerous thing to be taking into my adult life. This fear of failure. That as I became a married man, as I, as I became a father, as I became a pastor as a young man, these were very dangerous things to be taking into my new life. And... It had to do a lot with self-awareness, which, was, which is really what Doug's been studying in his, in his thesis about one's self-knowledge. And so we see in Saul this incredible, as well, this incredible fear of failure. We see in him a fear that from the, his inauguration as a king that Kevin referred to, to uh, the various times in chapters 13, 14, and 15 we see. I remember... In Thunder Bay, my pastoral ministry there also struggling with the fear of failure. You see, it's not a problem. It's not a sin to fear something. That in itself you can't control. But it's really unhealthy to be unaware of your fears and their effect upon you. And what they make you do, the decisions you make in result to them. Our enemies of the soul have to be identified. It's hard to fight an enemy that you do not identify. So you have to identify these things. And I went through severe testing in Thunder Bay. My ministry was under attack. There was an opposition against my ministry and and the leadership. I went through some years of difficulty. And I feared failure so often during those years. And for me, I was in my 30s by now. And I was starting to mature in my walk with God. And I began to see my security in the Lord more and more. And the thing that helped me get through those was this faith growing to understand God had to communicate to me what I was responsible for and what he was responsible for. And I cannot take responsibility for what God is responsible for. And that was huge for me. To get through that time and understand that I didn't have to play God. I didn't have to take responsibility for that. I had to just answer 
to an audience of one. And in the final year of our time there, when, when I got the release from that pastoral ministry, what, what gave me that peace to leave was when I realized that I had achieved under God's providence what he had intended me for, to achieve in those 13 years. Even though when I'd become 13 years prior, I had all kinds of other ideas I was supposed to achieve. You know, I want to say to you that as a pastor of White Ridge Baptist Church, I, I am answering to an audience of one. I really like it if people are pleased with me. I really want us to be in unity of the same mind, but I know that one day I will stand before God. And, and all the things that maybe I had on my mind may not get achieved, but I really want to see him be glorified. For as many years more, I hope there are many, that he has me here. As we take a look at Saul's life, there are some very important lessons for us to get a hold of. And one of them has to be that if you are going to get a hold of listening to God and obeying him, you're going to have to figure out what usurps that voice. What, what default setting you've been set on that blinds you or deafens you to his voice. And that self-awareness can help you then to trust and obey Him. Let's take a look at the first point that you find in your sermon outline in your bulletin. And that is an obedience lesson. You have to understand chapter 10 of 1 Samuel verse 8 if you're going to understand chapter 13. In chapter 10 verse 8, we see that Samuel says that he is, Saul is to go down to the place called Gilgal. And there he's going to uh, come after seven days and offer a sacrifice and give him further instructions. And so that's the backdrop of chapter 13. But in chapter 13, we see a very difficult scenario unfolding. What we see happening in early verses of chapter 13 is that Saul musters the troops of Israel and they go to Gilgal. And there they are and they're waiting these seven days and Samuel's not showing up. And as they're waiting, the Philistines are gathering across the valley. And it says in the scriptures that they are, they're more numerous than the sand on the seashore. I mean, they are absolutely outnumbering Israel in this battle. It says in the early chapter of 13 as well that as they're there, the, the, the literal word is this quaking with fear like this. It's like Israel's soldiers are quaking with fear. And they're escaping. Some of them are even crossing the Jordan River, getting out of town. Some of them are hiding in caves. They are afraid. Saul and a small company of soldiers are holed up at Gilgal. They're waiting for Samuel to come. And on the seventh day, he doesn't show. And so near the end of the seventh day, he just decides he's going to take matters into his own hands. And he, he asks for the burnt offering to be brought. He takes the role of priest. He assumes that role of Samuel. He does the deed. And as soon as that is done, Samuel arrives. And Samuel says, what are you doing? And no, notice his response, Saul's response in chapter 13, verse 11. He says, when I saw that the men were scattering, that you did not come, that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Did you see it in the first sentence? He's got his three alibis. You didn't come. Soldiers are scattering and the Philistines are getting closer. Three excuses right now. Therefore, disobeying God. 
Blame shifting. He says, when I saw that, I thought, now the Philistines are going to come and, and I haven't sought the Lord, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Now, what's going on here? Let me ask the question. Is, 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 Saul, is Saul operating by faith or by sight? We walk by faith, not by sight, the Bible says. Well, is, is Saul walking in this scripture by faith or by sight? It's not a trick question. He is walking absolutely by sight. He says, when he saw that his soldiers were scattering and Philistines were getting close, he thought, and then he was compelled. He saw, he thought, he felt compelled. Does that not sound like you and I sometimes? Just judging our next decision by our sensory perceptions, our inner compelling drives, our fears, all that we try to put life together with, and we see and we think and we feel compelled, and so we decide. And the factor of God, this faith factor that you say is in your life, it doesn't factor in. Now, why is Gilgal so important? Gilgal is important for several reasons. It's because in Joshua chapter 5, after Israel has crossed the Jordan and they've just entered the promised land, they do all kinds of stuff that day, that moment. First of all, they circumcise all of the children that were born in the last 40 years in the wilderness. Secondly, they offer uh, a sacrifice. They have the Passover meal. Hadn't celebrated it since they left Egypt 40 years earlier. Then, then we see in the scriptures that the day they arrive, they eat the fruit of the land and the manna that's coming every morning stops. And then Joshua meets up with the Lord himself and he gets the marching orders of how they're going to have a conquest over this land of Canaan. It's huge. This, this Gilgal place is this representation of you are a new people. And the reason that in Joshua 5 they called it Gilgal was because it means literally rolled away. And God said to Israel that day, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt. What was the reproach of Egypt? You're a slave people and you'll never be anything more than a slave people. You're a bunch of wandering vagrants in the desert and you'll never have any land to claim for your own. God's saying, no, I'm, I'm making you a brand new people. I've got, my promises are going to be fulfilled. Gilgal was huge, very important in representation. But at Gilgal, instead of responding to God by faith in the new identity that God had given Israel, Saul walks by sight, felt compelled. Turn to the person right beside you. And if you know the verse from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, Quote it to them right now. You got, I'll start you out. Trust in the Lord, okay? Turn to someone beside you and quote Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Probably the most quoted Proverbs of all time. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your steps or your paths. Well, Samuel responds to Saul in verse 13. You acted foolishly. 
you did not keep the command of the Lord. And because of it, God has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed another leader over his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Instead of being a man that trusts in God after God's own heart, Saul pursued or was compelled by his own inner heart's desires and his deceitful heart had led him to disobey God. Next week, we'll meet the man that God replaces Saul with, David, in chapter 16. He was not perfect, far from perfect, but he was a man after God's own heart, humble enough to own his own sin, secure enough to face it before God, courageous enough to fight the inner enemies that his heart had. So the question as we end with chap- with this first point is, how self-aware are you of some of those inner enemies, those inner compelling factors, the things that you do that cause you to not trust God, not obey God, even though you know what trusting God and obeying God is, you're compelled to do something else. What are those things? What are those enemies? Secondly, memory lessons. A second lesson I want us to learn from Saul's kingship is the danger of forgetting what God remembers. Don't forget what God remembers. To understand the significance of the Amalekites here, we need to go back to chapter 36 of Genesis and verse 12. In that passage, we read that this man named Amalek is actually a grandson of Esau. Who's Esau? Jacob's brother. Esau was the firstborn. He was the one that that was given the birthright. But on a bad day, when he was very hungry, he sold his birthright to Jacob, the conniver. And and the issue was, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 16, it says that that Esau was a godless man. And you're going like, whoa, come on, that's kind of heavy. All he did was, uh, you know, sell something for a bowl of soup. Well, what he sold, you see... The representation, the significance of what he sold was that he scorned a spiritual blessing for a physical gratification. He operated by the flesh instead of the spirit. And the people that were in his loins that became the Amalekites are a representation to you and I as Christians of the flesh that is in is against Israel, against the believer, all the days of our lives. You see in Scripture that God says from generation to generation, the Amalekites will always be at war with Israel. And we see in the Scripture over and over again how they come against Israel. In Exodus 17, they are the very first nation that that attacks Israel while while they're in the wilderness. And the scriptures where Moses is on the mountain holding up his hands in prayer. Joshua is down in the valley fighting. Whenever his hands are up, they're winning the battle. Whenever they're down, they're losing the battle. And the issue was at the end was God's got to give you the victory over the Amalekites. The victory over the flesh, Christian, is not won. It's received by faith. Doesn't mean you got to, you can't. It doesn't mean you don't fight the battle down in the valley. You fight the battle against the flesh. But it's not something that you, by your own self-determined resolve, are going to win. You have to receive it by faith. That's the gospel. And so here in the scripture, we could say much more. They, they are a plundering people. Even extra-biblical uh, literature talks about the Amalekites. They, 
In chapter 25 of Deuteronomy, it talks about how they were cowardly. They cut down all the Israelites in the wilderness, the weak, the vulnerable, the lagging behind all those they, they attacked. Even David later on in, in Samuel, when we see David fighting the Philistines, David's off fighting battles. What do the Amalekites do? They come in and they steal their children and their women. They're, they're cowards. They're always against you. They're connivers. And, and uh, the Amalekites, God said, were a wicked people. Throughout uh, Judges, we see also the hostility of the Amalekites against Israel. And in Deuteronomy 25, 17, God says, remember the Amalekites. These are the words behind what is being said in 1 Samuel 15, when God says, you go and you utterly destroy them. Utterly destroy them. The word is a one word in Hebrew, and it means to devote to destruction. It's more than just annihilate. It is do this as a sacrifice to God, for you are fulfilling the judgment of God. Now, we don't have time to go into this much, but this is a fulfillment of literally hundreds of years where God had, had been patient with this wicked people. One of the Canaanite peoples, the Amalekites. And, and he is forbearing and, and, and finally, God, when the full measure of his wrath is then, he says, I'm sending my people to exercise my judgment. Now, God's command to annihilate this people and to utterly destroy them is sounding in our 21st century ears like a barbaric act. And we would naturally... Think of Al-Qaeda's and, and uh, Boko Haram's and ISIS and, and so on that's in the news. And uh, we are on very dangerous turf when we associate any of those groups with what is happening in this scripture. For we are approaching it with a, a very 21st century secular mindset and we're going back into a very biblical theocracy of God's period of time when he acted out his vengeance on people and his justice upon people. Because the issue was either you kill the Amalekites or they will kill you. And the fact is that as the story continues and Saul having spared the Amalekite king and some of their people or, or their stock and so on. What is the, the end of the story is that who kills Saul, an Amalekite, kills Saul. And we read in that at the end of 1 Samuel. Kill or be killed. We, we see this, this incredible judgment of God. You know, when we, when we look at the Garden of Gethsemane, and we see Jesus on the eve of his crucifixion, and we witness there that among the twelve disciples, there was one with a sword. His name was Peter. Peter represents the church. Jesus says, upon you, Peter, I will build my church. It means rock, his name. And so what does Jesus say when Peter pulls out his sword and begins to fight in Gethsemane? He says, put your sword away. I'm not building a kingdom built on violence. I'm building a kingdom of peace, of love. I believe that somehow in that, in that very marching order in Gethsemane, Jesus is saying to his church, 
you're not like Old Testament Israel theocracy where I did some things in my judgment that needed to be done. Never again will that be occurring. For God is raising up a kingdom of peace and love. And so we, we read in the scriptures that, that Samuel was upset with Saul. And Saul, uh, Samuel brings Agag out and he, he slays him on the spot. Kill or be killed. The lesson for us, friends, is that the flesh is an enemy that we can't make agreements with. The last point of our message this morning is from the third point, hard lessons, the slippery slope of sin's deceit. And we don't have time to go into this very much. But if you were to take chapters, especially 14 and 15, I took these two chapters and I've got 10 or so different slippery slopes all the way down the hill where where Saul just made decision after a decision that was wrong, like honoring himself at Carmel. When, when, when he beats the Amalekites, you know, you know, when Moses and Joshua win against the Amalekites in Exodus 17, you know what they did? They set up a monument as well. Guess who it was to? He said, the Lord is my banner. This man is on a, on a bad track here. He's so self-deceived that in verse chapter 15, verse 13 and verse 20, we see that he really thinks he did obey the Lord when he didn't obey the Lord. When it's chapter 15, verse 24, we get the, we get the heart of it. He says, I was afraid of the people, so I gave in to them. And then there's a really telling words in chapter 15 and verse 30. It says, Saul replied, I've sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people And before Israel, come back with me so that I may worship the Lord, your God. Notice that? He says, my people, your God, Samuel. He was messed up. These were God's people. And God should have been his God. And and he's just just on a downward slide all the way through 1 Samuel. God grieves, it says in Scripture. He regrets that he made Saul king. I don't know all the matters of are on our hearts this morning. But some might appear small matters and some might appear as bigger matters. But I want to say this, that don't minimize what you think is small. In this scripture, God says through the prophet Samuel that that rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft and that idolatry or arrogance is like idolatry. We cannot minimize something if we've planted a flag in our hearts and we said somehow that, that I, I, God can't have this area or God can't lead me in this way, then we're on dangerous ground. God calls us to put Him first. And I want to tell you that there's no liberty, there's no freedom like the freedom of the Lordship of Christ in our lives. There's no freedom like the freedom that Jesus has purchased for us. And we are and when you when you come to a point where you really understand that you're you're living your life to an audience of one that's freedom because you can then say god i'll be responsible for what i'm responsible for and i'll leave to you all the things that i can't control